0: Today, from the global lane, turmoil rising in Iraq, Iran targets U.S. troops for attack, and the Islamic State is poised for a comeback.
1: It is very serious. Within the last three months, they've been really aggressive and reorganizing.
0: Resisting the federal vaccine mandate. Is a religious exemption the way to avoid the unemployment line?
2: It's a red herring. I don't think there ever will be a religious exemption as such.
0: American men are quitting college in record numbers.
3: I can't say I blame any man for saying he wants to skip out on paying top dollar just to be demonized.
0: And it's all right here on The Global Lane. Less than two weeks after the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, pro-Iranian forces responded by launching several kamikaze drone strikes in northern Iraq. One occurred on the 9-11 anniversary, not far from U.S. forces stationed near the Erbil airport in Kurdistan. American troops shot down two drones in that incident. Another drone attack occurred in a rural area outside of Erbil. And it's not only Iranian-backed militias that are on the move in Kurdistan. Turkey shelled Kurdistan Workers' Party army positions near the northwestern Iraqi city of Zaho. With U.S. combat troops set to withdraw from Iraq by the end of this year, the Iraqi people, especially Christians and America's Kurdish friends in northern Iraq, may be facing even greater danger. Well, Joining us to provide some insights is the founder and president of the Iraqi Christian Relief Council, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, Juliana Tamarazzi. Juliana, it's good to talk to you again, so congratulations on your Nobel nomination. And before we discuss that... First, tell me why you think these attacks are happening now, especially near U.S. troops on the 20th anniversary of 9-11.
1: Thank you for having me on, Gary. It's great to see you. Um, These attacks are just uh, a fingerprint of Iran, as you said. Um, They have become emboldened because of the fall of Afghanistan. A lot of people said that uh, ISIS was absolutely defeated in Iraq, but uh, starting 2019, ISIS activity started again, and within the last three months, they've been really aggressive in reorganizing, setting up checkpoints, attacking uh, people around Kirkuk area and other places uh, in Iraq. And these attacks, it is really Iran showing its infiltration, its might uh, against the American interests inside Iraq. Um, when I speak with my Iranian sources, they say Iranian government laughs when we say Iraq. They say Iraq is not uh, an independent country anymore. Iraq is really Iran 2.0. So um, this is what we had feared. Um, Now, before it was ISIS mainly that we were afraid of. Today we are afraid of the Iranian influence in Iraq. And also there is uh, an army of uh, Shabak. Shabaks are... um, a, uh, a minority group that has come about three, four hundred years ago to uh, Iraq, and they're backed by Iranians. They are wreaking havoc inside the Nineveh Plain. So, uh, before it was just ISIS, we were afraid of an Al Qaeda. Today, it's the Iranian influence, the Shabak influence. Well, In let's addition- talk
0: about it. Let's talk a minute about ISIS because when he recently uh, met with French President Macron, uh, Kurdistan President Barzani said the Kurds need help to fight Bash, ISIS. So is ISIS regenerating?
3: Yeah,
1: I mean, Absolutely. you
0: said they're they're a big threat. Uh, I mean, how big of a threat are they? Uh,
1: it is very serious because what happened was many uh, refugees from Syria flown came into Iraq. They flew, uh, or they walked through across the border. They came to Iraq. Uh, from Syria. Um, a lot of them, the unemployment is just devastating in Iraq. The economy has absolutely collapsed. The healthcare system has collapsed. So it is very easy to be able to infiltrate these camps that these Syrians and other Iraqis that uh, potentially um, were maybe pro-Saddam Hussein in the past. They are Sunnis that are disgruntled and they feel marginalized. And they are, it's very easy to bribe these individuals to join their forces, the ISIS forces, because people are hungry. People are tired. Uh, COVID has really wreaked havoc on uh, Iraq, on Iraqi population. So it's very easy to recruit uh, ISIS militants. We are really looking at an, a region or a country that is has, is being controlled by other forces. And we really have to come to the aid of the Iraqi government and the Kurdish government to be able to... Um, keeps
0: iraq together and juliana you were recently nominated for the 2021 nobel peace prize for all the work you've been doing throughout the uh, years with the organization that you founded the iraqi christian relief council and i'd wish you luck but it's really hard work and god's blessings has gotten you to this point so tell us a little bit about the mission of the organization and i I know you're continuing to help a lot of iraqi christians uh, throughout the region not just in iraq
1: Yes, uh, we founded the Iraqi Christian Relief Council in 2007. Uh, There was a gap in the American media about the Iraqi Christians, the Assyrians, Chaldeans, and Syriacs. And we uh, really travel across the world, especially in the United States, with a mission to raise awareness, educate everyone about who the Iraqi Christians are, we ask for prayers, and we raise funding. We're not in doubt, we really heavily rely on people's uh, goodness and financial sacrifices. And the money that we raise goes to Iraq for those who are left behind or who refuse to leave Iraq to help rebuild their lives. And uh, we also, as you mentioned, we help uh, refugees in Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan who are living really in subhuman conditions. Uh, amidst their suffering, they have not, not lost faith and Lord
0: Jesus Christ. And and they're still suffering now, even uh, seven years after the uh, ISIS onslaught of the Christian villages like Karakosh, uh, also uh, Mosul and the battle there in 2017. They are still not gone, and the people are still suffering. Okay, God's favor for the Nobel Peace Prize for you, but win or lose, Juliana, you're a winner to us. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for taking the time to share your thoughts with us today.
1: Thank you so much. Please pray um, for me, for my ministry, as this uh, Nobel nomination is not, does not really belong to me. It belongs to those who have suffered tremendously for their faith, for those women and children that are suffering today in Afghanistan. Christians in Afghanistan are absolutely devastated. We're standing for with them, uh, Christians in Nigeria, Christians in Iraq and elsewhere, uh, and really for all of humanity. I pray that God, if he sees us deserving, uh, we will bring it home and we will be able to raise awareness uh, on the persecuted people and those who are suffering. Okay, Thank the, you.
0: Su- the suffering continues. God bless. Thank you, Juliana.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Here on the American home front, Arizona became the first state to sue the federal government over President Biden's COVID vaccine mandate. Arizona Attorney General Mark Burnovich contends the mandate violates the Equal Protection Clause of the U.S. Constitution because it discriminates against U.S. citizens. Burnovich argues that undocumented immigrants apprehended by federal law enforcement are not subjected to the federal vaccine requirement. Joining us with some insights about the vaccine mandate is Judge Phil Ginn. Judge Ginn is a former North Carolina Superior Court judge, he currently serves as president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Judge Ginn, it's it's great having you with us. So I know you've said that you support COVID vaccination, just not government mandates. So what do you think of the Arizona Attorney General's argument?
2: Well, it's, it's a very novel argument. I would not have thought about that uh, initially, but uh, he's exactly correct. That's one of the... Uh, uh, great problems with this is that it's being it's not being applied uh, uniformly uh at all and so that's that's a problem but that goes only to a symptom uh, of the issue and not to the ultimate issue of the total government intrusion into the life of uh, of her citizens
0: and and i'm sure you're concerned about a slippery slope here what's what's the concern with that
2: well you know a lot of folks think that think maybe that the uh idea of vaccination is is not that big a deal, but it's not a far stretch to see the government being able to intrude into our lives in, in areas like uh, euthanasia for uh, genetic uh, issues that might crop up. Uh, we're already seeing it in selective abortions, but what if those were forced on you by the government? What if the government said that you could only have one child because of uh, of uh, uh, global cli- uh, climate uh, change. And what, what if they took your child from you and placed them in uh, some sort of foster home or other uh, type of facility because you weren't educating your child in the way that the government saw fit to educate your child? It, it, it's just a scary uh, time for us, as, particularly as Christians, because we're certainly seeing that in, in the loss of our religious freedom as the government continues to intrude on that as well.
0: So you see it as more a government intrusion, and a lot of people say it's unconstitutional. I I know you believe that as well. So how then should federal workers and companies with 100 workers or more respond? Is civil disobedience the answer?
2: Well, I I think you're already seeing that, uh, Gary. Uh, The uh, coach at uh, the Naval Academy was terminated. He uh, had asked for a religious exemption. They denied it. And when he wouldn't take the vaccination, they fired him. Uh, that certainly is a form of civil disobedience. We at SES uh, talk about natural law all the time as a part of our curriculum here, as I'm sure Regent University does as well. But um, we, we talk about things about being observant. we use the word intentional to to uh, ask our students and ask those people we come in contact with to be aware of what's going on in their lives. And be willing to pay a price if they uh, if they have a uh, have a belief that uh, something is wrong, as I do, in regard to this vaccination issue, uh, then they need to be willing to pay a price for that. Maybe uh, uh, we uh, we put online the same things that our um, that our forefathers did in, dec- in the Declaration of Independence, where they said, uh, well, "We give up our fa- our fortunes and our uh, and our lives."
0: Will people of faith be required to get a note from their pastor, rabbi, or imam in order to get an exemption? How is that going to work?
2: I, I think it is a um, it's a red herring, Gary. Uh, I don't think I don't think there ever will be a religious exemption as such. Um, I, I think it's just put in there, and uh, I don't ever see uh, the need uh, from the government standpoint of allowing a religious exemption. But uh, what form that would take? I don't really know, but it will be, uh, if folks are able to, uh, to get some sort of religious exemption, there'll be a lot of red tape to go with it, I will assure you.
0: Well, how then should Christians respond to the mandate?
2: Well, as I indicated, we need to be aware of all of these intrusions into our lives. We at SES are, are, are uh, faced with uh, uh, the possibility of the government trying to force us to uh, hire homosexuals and transgendered individuals. Uh, we're, we're right now uh, discussing uh, with our accreditation folks the fact that we may lose our accreditation if we refuse to do that. You know, in, uh, in the scripture, I, I'm recalling Ephesians five, where we're told to put on the whole armor of God and, and there are various uh, pieces of, um, of the uniform and the armor of the Roman soldiers that Paul refers to. One of the interesting things that I, I see in that passage of scripture is that we're never told to go to battle. Only thing we're told to do is to stand. And that's what I call on uh, Christians all across America to do is stand up and be counted, uh, not in a violent way. I think that would be contrary to Scripture, but, uh, but be willing to stand up and say, no, I, I'm not going to do this. You can, uh, you can take my job from me. You can do uh, whatever you uh, feel necessary to do, but I will protect my rights to the extent that I can through the court system. But um, as the children of Israel said when they were being uh, thrown into the fiery furnace, Uh, you can do this to us, but our God will save us. And even if he doesn't save us, we're still gonna honor him and and, uh, worship him only.
0: Amen. Okay. Judge Phil Ginn, president of Southern Evangelical Seminary. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your time and insights with us. Well, thank
2: you, Gary. It's been a pleasure. If folks want to know more information, it's ses.edu. And we, we certainly appreciate the time that you give us.
0: Are American men giving up on college? According to the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, male student college enrollments are in a steep decline, down more than 400,000 compared to one year ago. 59.5% of college students are female. That's a record high. And men are only 40.5%. So why is this happening? We're here to provide some insights as campus reform higher education fellow, Angela Morabito. Ms. Morabito is former press secretary of the U.S. Department of Education. Angela, it's always good to talk with you. So why is this happening? Why are American males giving up on college?
3: Well, as, as these men give up on higher education, it's because higher education has largely given up on them. We see this at campus reform with how schools are treating, or I should say mistreating, their male students. We have seen instances at places like the University of North Carolina, the University of Tennessee, and many others where these colleges tell men that masculinity is toxic, that they are inherently oppressive because of the way that they were born, the way that they were made. So, I can't say I blame any man for saying he wants to skip out on paying top dollar just to be demonized.
0: So University of North Carolina, University of Tennessee, tell us what specifically are they doing? Is it just a hostile atmosphere or are they doing something specifically?
3: Well, there are hostile atmospheres across the country, but those two schools in particular have hosted programming that was blatantly anti-men. It told them that masculinity was inherently harmful. It told them that being a man, being male was something that, you know, almost like something they needed to fix in themselves. So those are just two examples of something that's taking place across the country. And it's more than just programming. When I was at the Department of Ed, I saw firsthand how these Title IX processes at schools can really be used to mistreat men. And while the Trump era Title IX rule has gone a long way to solving that, it doesn't solve the core problem that universities really don't treat their male students very well.
0: And it's preferential treatment, is it not, for females?
3: Very much so. And look, gender equality, not a zero sum game. I think it's wonderful that colleges and universities wanna help their female students. There are hundreds of schools across this country that have women's centers. That's great, but there are virtually no men's centers and we both know if that was reversed, if there were men's centers everywhere and nobody helping the women, that would be a national scandal, as it should be. So colleges need to realize that they need to be supporting all of their students, not just those who fit certain demographics.
0: Angela, and I know you contend this begins before college in K-12 through public schools, so it has a lot to do with the attitude, one size fits all, so tell us about that.
3: Very much so. Well, one size does not fit all in education, and it never has. But if you look at much of the recent scholarship on the way that young boys and young girls learn, they learn very differently. And the way that most schools are set up really cater to the way that young women learn and they leave these male students behind. So not only are men facing these worse outcomes when they get to college, they're less likely to even get there in the first place because school is, is built in a way that doesn't work the way that their minds do. This really started in higher education, this whole push to pretend like men and women are exactly the same. Instead of you know celebrating those God-given differences, we had to pretend like one size was the right thing for every student. And, and it's just not. So we really ought to trust the science here and learn that kids need to be in schools that fit the way that they learn best.
0: And I understand young boys are more, uh, they want to be more hands-on rather than just sitting at a desk and that type of thing. So how about trade schools and technical institutes? Seems like more men are opting out or opting to advance themselves with that. Uh, Tell us about that one.
3: College is not for everybody. We don't want or need everybody to go to college. Trade schools can be a wonderful alternative that are pathways to great careers with a lot less student debt, a lot less tuition costs. So we see men flooding into these trade schools where, sure enough, they're more likely to cater to the way that men learn, which is hands-on learning, learning by doing, as opposed to things that are more typically associated with the female mind, which is sitting at a desk and learning, reading quietly, uh, activities that you know we shouldn't be surprised to see men are, aren't finding their way in.
0: And finally, Angela, quickly, how will fewer males getting college degrees affect American society in the long run?
3: Oh, wow, that is a huge question. Well, first of all, it affects it affects the job market, of course, because you know a lot of jobs do require bachelor's degrees. So that applicant pool is going to be majority female. Uh, second of all, you're going to see uh, America's future leaders, right? They're on college campuses right now. These institutions, especially at the very highest levels, are training America's future leaders. And if we want our leadership and our government to look like America and to really represent us, we should all be interested in in, what the makeup of these schools are. Are they being fair in college admissions? Campus reform will tell you no. We've seen what's going on at Harvard where they're pulling strings based on race. Well, they shouldn't be pulling strings based on race or gender or any other demographic group. They really ought to be looking at these applicants as unique individuals and really, you know, treating them as the individuals that they are instead of pretending there are just a few metrics for success. There are just a few ways to make it in the world. And if you don't fit the mold, well, you're out of luck. We want to see colleges act like they're in a free market and really compete for talent. And to do that, that means they can't just forget half the population.
0: Angelo Morabito. Thanks for providing those insights. We appreciate it.
3: Thank you, Gary.
0: Americans are starting to rise up against vaccine mandates. 16 health care workers in Lewis County, New York, recently quit their jobs instead of getting jabbed. And that caused the county hospital there to stop delivering babies, at least for now. Lewis County is one of the least populated counties in the state. But it looks like women there will have to either deliver their babies at home or travel to a more distant hospital when they go into labor. And it's not only happening in New York. National Review reports that more than one quarter of the nurses responding to an Ohio Nurses Association survey say they'll resign rather than get vaccinated. Think about it. This is dangerous. If it spreads nationwide, it may lead to more people actually dying from health care neglect than from COVID-19. And it's not just healthcare workers who say they'll quit if forced to take the COVID vaccine. As if the defunding movement hasn't been enough to force police officers from their jobs, now police, fire, and EMT unions around the country report many of their members are likely to resist getting the shots. That means they'll either quit or be fired from their jobs. Folks, I'm not here to advocate getting or not getting the vaccine, but do you see where government mandates may be heading? Americans detest the elite ruling class, forcing them to adhere to restrictive edicts. Think Boston Tea Party and taxation without representation. Are you finding hospital emergency room wait times lengthier than before? And how long are you now waiting for that hamburger and fries that only took you about five minutes to get prior to the pandemic? Nationwide, employers are having trouble finding enough workers to sustain their businesses. And soon, unemployment rolls may swell with laid-off postal workers, firefighters, police, healthcare workers, and others because of government-imposed vaccine mandates. What a mess that will be. In Detroit, TV station WXYZ solicited comments from viewers hoping to hear about all the people who had died from COVID-19 because they hadn't taken the vaccine. Instead, thousands responded with examples of loved ones who became seriously ill or died after getting the shot. Whoops, how did that happen? Folks, forcing people to choose between the unemployment line or injecting a new vaccine into their bodies is un-American. Remember, we're supposed to be the land of the free. If government can get away with forcing workers to lose their jobs if they don't comply, what's next? Requiring you to vote or think a certain way to keep your job? If you're forced to make a choice, what should you do? How about praying and seeking godly wisdom? Then trust God to direct your steps. And remember, your health and future belong to Him, not the government. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.